Before I begin, just a short uh, commercial message. So I'm thrilled and privileged to be with you tonight. Uh, we're going to take off two weeks. So we will not be together on February 24th. We will not be together on March 3rd, but with God's help, we will resume on March 10th. And for the morning, 10 at 9, with God's help, we will be meeting tomorrow morning. But Sunday morning, February 20th, we will not be meeting. And we will resume the 10 at 9 on Sunday morning, March 6th. Just to mention that the daily email that I send out will continue uh, while I am away. I've actually already prepared them all, so they're scheduled all to go out one at a time. And if you are not getting that daily email and would like to receive it, just send me a message and I would be happy to add you to the list. I'm very happy that that list is growing because it makes it easy to put all of the learning in one place, one easy click to be able to get what you want. So I invite you to join us. Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, February 17th, 2022. What a fantastic privilege it is and an honor it is for me to be able to be with you tonight, for us to be able to study together. And I'm grateful to every single one of you for putting aside this time to be able to study Torah tonight. The central event in our Torah portion this Shabbos, the Parsha Kisisa, which is the catastrophe of the Egil Hazahov, the building of the golden calf, just doesn't make sense. After thousands of years and hundreds of thousands of pages of commentary to explain to describe, to try to fathom. The central question about this narrative simply has no answer. How is it possible just 40 days after the revelation at Sinai, the greatest event of all time, when the entire Jewish people heard God speak directly, something that we can't even comprehend. We can't even imagine the depth of the impact it must have had on every single individual who heard those words. And those words included the words of God. Do not make a graven image. How is it possible? And the Jewish people said, Nasevenishma. They committed themselves to observing every detail. How is it possible just 40 days later to build the golden calf? There is simply no answer. But Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Weinreb writes, there is an explanation. Before we get to that, let's start with another question. Every Shabbos, we have a weekly Torah portion, this week's Parsha's Kisisa, and we also have a Haftorah, 
which is a passage from one of the prophets that relates thematically to that week's Torah portion. But this Shabbos, the connection appears to be missing. The narrative of the Haftorah is a very famous narrative. From Sefer Malachim, the Book of Kings, and it is a central event in the life of Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, Eliyahu Anavi, who lived in the northern part of Israel during the time that the king was Ahav, Ahab, and his wife, the queen, was Ezebel, Jezebel. We have spoken about this unusual couple before. And the narrative concerns an event where Elio Hanafi, the prophet Elijah, confronts Ahav, who is a wicked, evil person, as we have studied somewhat in the past, and says to him that you have forsaken the laws of God. You have followed the priests of Baal. Baal was an idolatrous pagan worship that unfortunately, tragically, was somewhat common, especially in the northern part of Israel at that time. And Elio says to Achav, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a showdown. I want you to gather together 400 priests of Baal, pagan priests, who were among the regular dinner guests of the queen, Izevil Jezebel. That's quite a dinner. And this is going to take place at Har HaKarmel, Mount Carmel, which you can go visit today. It's just south of Haifa. And Achav agreed. And so a large crowd of Jewish people gathered at this place. And Eliyahu addressed the crowd and he said to them, Ad How long will you keep jumping on both sides of the fence? Either you will serve God, the one God, the true God, the God of Israel, or you're going to worship idols and serve Baal. Which is it going to be? Velo anu ha'am davar. The people were silent. No one said a word. Elio said to the crowd, I am one single individual and against me there, you see there are 400 priests of this idolatry, this pagan idolatry, Baal. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a contest. We're going to have a demonstration. Each of us will prepare a sacrifice. And they will call out to their gods. And I will call out to Hashem, the God, the one true God of heaven and earth. And we will see which of our sacrifices is miraculously consumed by a fire that descends from heaven, indicating that that is the truth. 
Vayan kol ha'am vayomru tov hadavar. And all of the people who were assembled said, this is a good idea. We want to see. We want certainty. It's amazing. They were following idolatry, but they were willing to say, we want to know the truth. So the priests of Baal started to pray to their idols, to their gods. Ve'en kol ve'en ona. There was no voice. There was no answer. Garnished. Nothing happened. Finally, later that day, after the priests of Baal had worn themselves out praying to their false gods, who of course did not answer, Vayikach Eliyahu Avonim. Eliyahu Hanavi, the prophet Elijah, took twelve stones, equivalent to the number of the twelve tribes of Israel. And in the midst of those stones, he built an altar, a Mizbeach. Vayigash Eliyahu Hanavi, and Eliyahu came close to offering this offering by Yomer. And he said, Hashem Elokei Avram Yitzchak Yisrael. God, the God of Avram, our patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hayom Yivoda Kiyato Elokim Yisrael. Today it will be known that you, God, are the one true God. Aneni Hashem, Aneni. Answer me, God. Answer me. The Yeduham Azen, all of these people, all of the people that are gathered, who are questioning, who are following false items, all of the people will know, Hashem Elokim, that you are the true God. As Liba Macharanis, and you will return their wandering heart. And all of a sudden, Vatipol Eish Hashem, and a fire descended from God from heaven, Vatolchal Es and it consumed the offering, Vayar Kolhaam, and everyone saw. The entire people, everyone saw Vayiplu al and they all bowed down on their faces Vayomru, and they all said, Hashem hu Elokim, Hashem hu Elokim. God is the one true Lord. God is the one true Lord. Wow. What a scene. What a drama. What an ending. <clears throat> but how is that connected to our Torah portion? Because our Parsha is about the building of the golden calf. Eliyahu is demonstrating the truth of one God and the falseness of idols. So the answer I want to share with you this evening is inspired by the writing of Nechama Leibovitch. Now, 
Nechama Levovich does not exactly say what I am going to say, so I take responsibility for it. But what she does write leads me to the answer that I want to share with you tonight. Let's return to Ritzvi Hirschweinrib. There is no answer to how the Jewish people could sin so terribly just 40 days after God revealed himself in Mount Sinai and spoke to the Jewish people and told them not to do what they did 40 days later. But it is a fact of human nature. When people achieve great achievements, when they put great effort and toil into them, they experience a sense of exhilaration and excitement, a high. Soon afterwards, often very soon afterwards, there is a come down from that high. The children of Israel experienced the most momentous occasion in all of human history. God himself revealed himself at Mount Sinai. They heard the voice of God with thunder and lightning. And 40 days later, they built the golden calf. What a come down. How can one explain a process of spiritual deterioration as drastic and quick as this? Just weeks ago, the Jewish people were on the highest possible level of religiosity and commitment to the one God. And now they're dancing and prancing before a golden idol? Is this not inexplicable? Yes, writes Rav Weinrib, it is inexplicable, but it is a common human phenomenon. People are capable of attaining greatness. But we are not as capable of sustaining greatness. We can achieve highs of all kinds. But it's very, very difficult to maintain those highs. There is an inevitable come down. We see this expressed in the famous passage in Tehillim in the book of Psalms. Psalm number 24 Hashem, who will ascend the mountain of God, and who will stand in his holy place? Those two lines are not repetitive, explains Rabbi Weinrib. They're two separate questions. Hashem, who will ascend the mountain of God? Well, even if you answer that question, even if you figure out who that person is, the second question still remains. Who will stand in that place? Who will continue to stand in that place? Because it's relatively easy to ascend to a high level. It's much more difficult to remain at that high level and preserve that high level. And very often we don't. 
Vatipol Esh Hashem, and a fire came from God. Vatochal Es Haola, and consumed miraculously the offering that Elio Hanabi, the prophet Elijah, had prepared. Vayakol Ha'am, and the entire people saw. Vayiplu Al and they fell in respect, in awe. In overwhelming spirituality, they fell to their faces. Vayomru, and they all said, remember, they wanted to know. Vayomru Tovadar, we want to know. And now they saw. Vayomru Hashem Hu Elohim, Hashem Hu Elohim. God is Lord, God is Master, God is the one true God. What a climax, what a dramatic ending. But the connection to our Parsha is not in that passage. It's in the next passage. After our Haftorah. And the powerful connection of this Haftorah reading to our Parsha depends, assumes, that we know what happened next. Because what happened next, within just a few days, is the people started to return to Baal, to idolatry. But, 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 Hashem Hulakim, what happened? There could not have been a more glorious, sublime, exuberant, direct knowledge of one God. They saw it with their own eyes. There's no answer. Just the fact that it happens. After the greatest ascent, often comes an equally or even steeper descent. And this is a very important lesson for every single one of us. Because we have moments of intense spirituality, of transcendence, of feeling connected to God. And all too often those moments are brief. And when they're over, we may experience a low, a letdown. We have to take hope writes Rabbi Reinrib, in the knowledge that almost all intense human experiences are transitory and are followed by feelings of hollowness. That's human nature. It's not you. It's not me. It's just the way that we are. We can ascend the mountain, but usually we cannot stand there for long. And so... We must humbly accept our descent, our frustrating failures and limitations, and persist in climbing the mountain. Because ups and downs, peaks and valleys are to be expected in all aspects of life. We will experience highs, but we must expect the inevitable 
lows. And, and here's the key, we have to hang in there and try and try again to recapture those highs. And that's the lesson of this week's Torah portion. We ascended a spiritual mountain. Then we came down into an orgy of idolatry. But then our Torah portion continues. We persisted and with the assistance of God's mercy, as we read towards the end of this Torah portion, we received an amazing gift, the possibility of forgiveness. Now, this may demoralize you. It's inevitable. No matter how much effort you put into growth, no matter how much effort you put into reaching for God, reaching for good, there will come a time when you will fall, when I will fall, when I will stumble and lose my way. And I know it sounds harsh. It sounds crushing. So what's the use of even trying if I'm going to fail in the future? But please listen carefully. Because in fact, this is one of the greatest gifts in life. And I realize how crazy that sounds, but it's true. And I can prove it. I learned about this from an article written by Bruce Feiler. It was published a few years ago in the New York Times, and the title of the article is The Stories That Bind Us. And it's about Dr. Marshall Duke. Dr. Duke was a psychologist at Emory University. He was working in the mid-1990s. And at that time, there was a lot of research going on into the dissipation of the family, the problems that families face. But Dr. Duke was more interested in trying to study what families could do to counteract that dissolution, the forces of deterioration of the family. And at the same time, his wife, Sarah, also a psychologist, was working with children, and she noticed something about her students. The ones who know a lot about their families tend to do better when they face challenges. So, the two of them, plus Dr. Robin Fivish, developed a hypothesis. They developed a measure called the Do You Know scale that asked children to answer 20 questions. Now, examples of the questions were, they all started, Do You Know? Do you know where your grandparents grew up? 
Do you know where your mom and dad went to high school? Do you know where your parents met? Do you know an illness or something really terrible that happened in your family? Do you know the story of your birth? 20 questions, do you know? They asked these questions of a great number of children, and then they compared the answers that the children gave with a significant battery of psychological tests that these same children had taken, and they found an overwhelming conclusion. The stronger their knowledge of their family's history, the more questions they could answer, do you know about their family? The stronger their sense of control over their lives, the higher their self-esteem, and the more successful they turned out in life. The do you know scale turned out to be the best, the best single indicator of children's emotional health and happiness. Dr. Duke said, we were blown away. Now, then they found a further wrinkle in this. They found <clears throat> that every family has its own unifying narrative. The story that they tell about themselves. And they found that those narratives take one of three shapes, three models of a narrative that a family will tell each other. First, there's the ascending family narrative, which goes something like this. Son, when we came to this country, we had nothing, but our family worked hard. We opened a store. Your grandfather went to high school. Your father went to college. And now you will fill in the blank. That's the ascending family narrative. The second is the descending narrative. Sweetheart, we used to have it all. And then... We lost everything. But Dr. Duke found that the most healthful narrative is the third category, the third type. And it's called the oscillating family narrative. Oscillating, up and down. And it goes something like this. Dear, let me tell you, we've had ups and downs in our family. We built a family business. Your grandfather was a pillar of the community. But we also had setbacks. You had an uncle who was once arrested. We had a house that burned down. Your father once lost his job. But no matter what happened, we always stuck together as a family. The oscillating family narrative. Dr. Duke said, 
that these children that grew up in a family whose narrative was, and who told the story, and the story was this oscillating family narrative, those are the children that grew up with the most self-confidence, the most resilience, and the best tools to do better in life. Here's the bottom line. If you want a happier family, create, refine, and retell the story of your family's positive moments and your ability to bounce back from the difficult moments. And that is what we all do together this Shabbos. When we read the Parsha of Kisisa and we tell the story of our lowest moment as a people. Children, we say from this Parsha, here's our story. We heard God speak. It never happened before or since. And then we made a terrible mistake. To this day, we don't understand why we did it. But then, with God's mercy, we bounce back. And because of that terrible fall, we were even stronger afterwards. And we learned skills that have bettered us and helped us for over 3,000 years and continue to help us and made us and make us stronger and better today. The oscillating family narrative. So I want to share with you a dramatic and very practical example of how this works. Like many of you, I have been blessed to learn so much Torah and to share so much Torah from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory. Most of it I read. But what I'm going to share with you now, I had the privilege to hear from Rabbi Sachs directly, in person, when he addressed a meeting of the Montreal Board of Rabbis about 15 years ago. So in our parts of the Jewish people build the golden calf, and God's immediate reaction is he's going to destroy them. That's it. Going to wipe you out. It's over. And then Moshe goes back up to Mount Sinai in a prolonged attempt to repair the shattered relationship between God and the Jewish people. But God says to Moshe, forget it. Vayomer Hashem el Moshe. 
God says to Moshe, see these people? I see these people. They are a stiff-necked people. They are stubborn. And now God says to Moshe, leave me alone. Don't talk to me. My anger is burning against them. I'm going to wipe them out. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to listen to you. Don't ask anything. It's over. Forget it. Because they are a stiff-necked people. Am Oref. Stubborn. Stiff-necked. Moshe is not dissuaded. I mean, it's just so... Just think about that for a moment. God says, be quiet. I'm not going to listen. And Moshe says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be quiet. Moshe is not dissuaded. And Moshe counters God's charge. Listen carefully. Vayomer, Moshe says to God, If I could somehow find favor in your eyes for you to listen, please just listen to what I want to say. Please let me just present these words, this argument to address your charge. Please, God, change your mind. Don't destroy the Jewish people. Don't separate yourself from the Jewish people. Re-engage with them. Resume your presence amidst the Jewish people. Why should you relent? Why should you forgive them? God, Moshe says to God, Because they are a stubborn people. They are a stiff-necked people. And therefore, you should forgive them for your sin. <laughs> Hold on a minute. Wait a minute. What does that mean? God says, I'm going to destroy them because they're a stiff-necked people. Moshe says, no, forgive them because they're a stiff-necked people. But being stubborn and stick-necked is the reason that God says, I'm going to destroy them. So how is that a, a response to God's charge. It's it's if it wasn't so serious, it would be humorous, but it's but it's dead serious. God said, I'm Orif because they're stiff-necked, I'm gonna destroy them. So what in the world is Moshe saying? There are several approaches to this question. Rabbi Sachs presented the answer of Rabbi Yitzchak Nussenbaum, who lived and died in the Warsaw Ghetto, which adds to the significance and the truth of his answer. And his answer is that Moshe tells God, forgive the Jewish people, because what is now their greatest vice will one day be their most heroic virtue. Their amksheoref, they're stubborn, they're obstinate, they have every reason to thank you, but they complain. Just days after hearing you, God, speak, they make a golden calf. But just as they are obstinate in their disobedience now to you, God, Moshe says, 
one day they will be just as obstinate in their loyalty to you. Nations will entice them to assimilate, but they will refuse. Religions will urge them to convert, but they will resist. Even you, God, will appear to desert them. But they will go to their deaths singing, I believe with a complete belief. And that's why, God, you should forgive them. Because the time will come when that stubbornness will not be a tragic failing, but a noble and defiant loyalty. Forgive them because they are an Am Kshayorev. I want to tell you a story. A few years ago, I met a truly stiff-necked Jew. His name is Alon Davidi. And at that time, he was the chairman of the Sterot Security Committee. Sterot, of course, is the community just alongside the Gaza Strip in the southern part of Israel, the southwest part of Israel. For years, as you know, he lives, lived less than one kilometer away from Gaza. For years, Qasem rockets have been shot at Sterot and neighboring communities. Sometimes there have been more than 400 a month. As I'm sure you know, there's an alarm system called Seva Adom, 15 seconds to get to shelter. And during those frequent attacks, which have been going on for years and still go on periodically, people are constantly running to shelter. At that time, a few years ago, children couldn't play outside because there were no playgrounds that had shelters next to them. Okay, now there are a few more shelters. But the attacks continue. And listen carefully. This is just incredible. Our brothers and sisters in Sterot and neighboring areas, 75 to 94% of all children exhibit serious symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Bedwetting, hysteria, freezing in place, unable to run to shelter, over and over, non-stop, all hours of the day and night. You hear the siren. You run for cover as if your life depends on it, which it does. You have 15 seconds. Constantly living through terror, nightmares, no activity that can't be interrupted in 15 seconds. 
This was the reality of Sterot. It has been for years and it is still happening. So when I spoke to Elon, it was several years ago. At that time, he said to me, he said a few years earlier, there were 24,000 inhabitants of Sterot. There are more in the neighboring areas, but just Sterot itself. He told me a few years ago there were 24,000 people, and now, when he told me the story, there are only 20,000 people. I said to him, 20,000 people? I'm amazed that there are that many left? That there are 20,000 people that are willing to live under those conditions? He said to me, I'll tell you why they're there. A portion of them are olim. They made Aliyah. And they receive government housing. And they can't afford to move. They have nowhere to go. Another portion of them are elderly. Who have no family. And they have nowhere to go. And the rest of them, like Alon and his family, he told me, decided to be stiff-necked. He told me, we are kshe-oref. We're stubborn. He said, we are not leaving because to leave would mean our enemies have won. We must make sure we who do not face that type of terrible drama, we who are not tested in that kind of a way, but every one of us has our own stuff going on. We must make sure that our stubbornness, which we have in abundance if we're honest with ourselves, we have to make sure that our stubbornness is used the same way to stay faithful and to remain loyal to God and to his Torah. Forgive them, Moshe says, because they are a stiff-necked people, because the time will come when that stubbornness will not be a tragic failing, but a noble and defiant loyalty. And so it came to be. And so it is. And so it will be. My friends, I want to wish you a wonderful evening. A fantastic Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.